Throughout the disarray of history, the church has been anchored by creed, a set of core teachings that produces holiness, harmony, and hope. In this series, we will reflect on the essential teachings of Christianity, pursuing questions like, can God be known? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? We believe that time spent in reflection on the essentials will become more than knowing doctrine. It will be time invested in knowing God himself. Good morning again. My name is Carissa Barris, and I uh, serve on not only the worship team here at Waterstone, but also Stephen Ministry. So if you have any questions, let me know. A reading from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Carissa. And that passage is at the heart of Stephen Ministry, a ministry at Waterstone where uh, people from our congregation who've been trained in, in Stephen Ministry come alongside others on the worst day of their life. We want to welcome all of you, we want to welcome those of you joining us online. We want you to know that the high point of our worship today will be when we come to the table of the Lord. There are stations around the room and you at home if you want to go and prepare the elements now so that you'll be ready as Jesus invites us to his table at the end of the message today. Wendell Berry wrote an essay several years ago called The Burden of the Gospels. And in the essay, he poses what he calls two embarrassing questions. And they're embarrassing because they're questions that put us on the spot. The first question is this. If you had been living in Jesus' time and had heard him teaching, would you have been one of his followers? (laughs) Now, that's a good question. And uh, what Wendell Berry does next is a thought experiment. And I thought it would be good for us to do it together. He says, now, forget that you've read the Gospels. Forget that Jesus has been the central figure of human history for the last 2,000 years. Just imagine you're back in the day. You're walking by the steps of the courthouse, and there's this guy up there you've heard about teaching. His name is either Joe Green or Green Joe, depending on the judgments of those you talk to on the fringe of the crowd. And he starts to say things like this, outrageous things, unexpected things. He says, I can connect you to the Father in heaven. 
And when you're connected to the Father in heaven, I will pour such love into you that you'll be able to love everyone. So, such that when someone strikes you on the right cheek, you'll offer them the left. When someone curses you, you'll bless them. When someone doubts you, you'll pray for them. And then Joe Green finishes the talk and he comes down the stairs, works his way through the crowd, and he locks eyes with you. And he says, can I come to your house for dinner? What would you say? Being mindful that even those who were most intimate in friendship with Jesus could never be accused of being overconfident about him. And then Wendell Berry asked the second embarrassing question that puts us on the spot. Let's say that you do decide to maybe have Jesus over to your home, which in the ancient world was like the most intimate thing you could do with another person in terms of friendship. And uh, he says, Jesus, if, uh, Joe Green, sorry, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can you be sure that you would keep his commandments if it became excruciatingly, and I know Wendell Berry chose that word purposefully. It's from the word cross. It became excruciatingly painful to do so. And then Wendell Berry tells a story, a true story, about a man named Dirk Willems in 1569 in the Netherlands. He was an Anabaptist, what we today call Mennonites, he was running from a uh, thief catcher, which here in the West we call bounty hunters, hired by the governor, government to uh, arrest Dirk Willems for preaching the gospel and for promoting believers' baptism. He was branded a heretic and needed to be arrested. Dirk Willems takes off running for home because before he was arrested, he had something he needed to share with his family. They were running across the lake in the early spring, and the pursuer, the thief catcher, falls through the ice cries out for help. If you love me, keep my commandments. My commandment is to love your enemies. And what does the Mennonite Dirk Willems do? Well, there's a statue in Manitoba at the Mennonite Heritage Museum. He saves the thief catcher's life. The thief catcher, even though he wanted to let Dirk Williams go, required by the government, he's arrested. And days later, Dirk Williams is burned in what the Mennonites call the lingering fire. It's quite an essay. And those are quite the questions, but I surmise that you can't fully answer those questions of Wendell Berry until you answer an even more important and urgent question, and that's simply this. Simply, <laughs> it costs us everything. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That will determine your answers to the burden of the gospel. It's an urgent question, urgent because of history. Jesus is the most central figure in human history, all time. We must reckon with that. In theology, Martin Luther says, we worship and know no God save Jesus Christ. And his point is that it's Jesus Christ, as we've sung, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He's the central figure of theology. And 
if you believe the text that Carissa read, when everything is said and done, you see, we're not in a cyclical, historical uh, uh, spiral going nowhere. We're headed straight to a point in time when Jesus returns. And at some point near that, every knee will bow. So, our future is called into question right now. What will we do with Jesus? He's the central figure of history, of theology, and the future. Who is Jesus? I submit is an important question. And so today, from this text, these six verses, which I would put forth as the most profound six verses in the New Testament, what Paul does is amazing. It's either a poem that Paul has written, or most scholars think it was a hymn, one of the first hymns that the church sang in worship. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And in these six verses, we're going to see three things that answer the question, who is Jesus? First, Jesus is God. Second, Jesus is man. Human. And third, being the God-man, Jesus is servant. He came to serve. Let's walk through and answer the question, who is Jesus? He's God. Let's look at verse 6 of the poem that Paul writes, or this hymn that's being sung. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This is just an absolutely profound nosebleed theological 14er that Paul is giving us here. And we only have time for a noun and a verb. The noun here is that word nature, very nature. It's the Greek word morphe, and it means an outer expression of an inner reality. It means that whatever the goods are that make God God, Jesus has them. He's got the goods of divinity. It means that, 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 that whatever we say of God, whatever His substance is, whatever the being of divinity is, whatever the essence of God is, Jesus is that. He's God. It's the most bold, profound, direct statement that could ever be made to describe Jesus as God. The verb that we would point out, being in, is, uh, this is, I know, boring. Some of you, you might want to do some work on this if you get home or you can't sleep tonight. Uh, it's a Greek imperfect. It's a verb tense that means what he was in the past, he continues to be in the present. So he's always been God, pre-existing as God. And now that he has come down, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but now he's become the God-man, he still continues as God. So let me underline this by saying it this way. Eternally, whatever makes God God, Jesus has, and he cannot stop being God. Jesus is God. Now, do you feel the weight of that? I want to just take a moment because in most colleges, high schools, universities, the theory about any kind of religious studies that involve Jesus is that he was probably just a good man, a good teacher. And throughout the centuries following his death, and we don't know where his body is, but he was embellished to become a superhuman by his followers that venerated him to deity. How would we answer that question from a friend? I would suggest two things. First, 
I would go to the New Testament and I would offer, hey, could we read maybe the Gospel of John together? Because what you'll find out is that Jesus puts Himself at the center of everything again and again and again. Such that if you were to take all that out, you'd be left with what? Yeah, the Jefferson Bible. I know. Uh, Not much. Not much. Because Jesus is always self-conscious, aware, and speaking, knowing that He is God. So just a quick run. Fasten your seatbelts. Even the Gospel of John. Right? He puts Himself at the center. If you're disillusioned, if you're discouraged, depressed, in darkness, Jesus says, John 8, I am the light of the world. If you follow Me, you'll never walk in darkness again. I will be the light of life. If you're scared of death, John 11, Jesus puts Himself at the center and says, but I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in Me, even though you die, you live. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, are you weary? Are you burdened? Really struggling in life? Come to Me. And I will give you rest. Are you churning inside, wanting uh, like, uh, significance and purpose? Are you churning that something can satisfy your heart? Freud said it's love. Jung said it's security. Adler said it's significance. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat of Me, you will never be hungry again. Jesus made these indirect comments that put Himself in the place of God. Two of my favorites. One in Mark. Two, when uh, these people get a paralyzed man in front of Him. Everyone in the crowd hearing about the mirror worker expects Jesus to say something like, get up and walk. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. What? The pastors were on edge. They actually say, Wait a minute, no one can forgive sins except God alone. And Jesus, <laughs> I think Jesus had an amazing sense of humor. Because what he says next is, get up and walk. <laughs> That's just like hilarious to me. I mean, he's just like annoying the bejeebers out of everyone there to get attention and say, you've got to consider me. You've got to. Because I can say, get up and walk and bodies are healed, but I can also forgive sins. I put myself in the place of God. C.S. Lewis, after reading this text, said that if this is not God speaking this, this is the conceit that's unchallenged by any other character in history. My second favorite place of Jesus indirectly claiming to be God is at the end of His ministry in Matthew 25 when He says to the crowd, look, at the end of time, it's going to be Me. You and every person who's ever lived will stand before me. And in my right hand will be the sheep. And they're the ones that have followed me and obeyed me. And they will walk into eternity with me. The other side will be the goats. And they will be separated from me for all eternity. And I'm asking, would you invite this guy over for dinner? Seriously. And then Jesus made some direct claims. Like, punch to the gut. Direct claims. Paul Joslin preached on one a few weeks ago from Mark chapter 14. We read uh, Jesus is in his sham trial. Uh, he, he, again, the high priest asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. That's the divine name right there. Uh, I am. And you will see the Son of Man. We're going to come back to that name. 
sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory. Notice the response to this claim. Next slide. The high priest tore his clothes. The high priest is the highest figure in Judaism. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. That's what we would call a direct claim to be God. One other one is in, after the resurrection in John chapter 20. Doubting Thomas, show me your, you know, the wounds where you're pierced. Show me the scars in your hands. But put your finger here. Reach out your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, he believes. Now right there, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, oh, Thomas, you, know, uh, you took this too far. My Lord and my God. That, where'd you get that notion? No. Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who sit in an auditorium of Waterstone Community Church in 2022 who have not seen and yet have believed. That's a direct claim. And lastly, that name Son of Man, which he shared with the high priest, he shared that often throughout the Gospels. Whenever Jesus refers to himself in the third person like a title, he always uses the name Son of Man. Now, I think often we read that and on the surface think, of course, that's because he was a man. No. The title Son of Man, specifically for a Jewish audience, was to take people to these verses in Daniel chapter 7. This is why Jesus calls Himself again and again the Son of Man. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Father in heaven, and was led into His presence. He was given authority, King, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus claiming the name Son of Man is claiming his Godship. Do you feel the weight of this? The other thing I would say to a friend who's saying, wait a minute, this just became legend after Jesus died, his followers. What I would say is that this text in Philippians, this poem or hymn, was written 30 years after Jesus died. So we know that in the early church, 30 years after Jesus died, we were worshiping Jesus as God and we were teaching that He was self-aware of His Godness. And on top of this, for the movement of Jesus to start among the Jewish people who, as we heard from the high priest, for a man to claim he's God is blasphemous. For the movement of Jesus to start among the Jewish people for him to make those claims, and yet this movement attracted thousands of Jews? How startling must Jesus have been? Do you feel the weight of this? Do we? John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, said, no one in the Gospels ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus. The reaction was always extremely they either heard what he was claiming to be and wanted to kill him and were angry and walked away, or they understood exactly what he was claiming to be and they walked away because it was too much cost. 
Or thirdly, they threw themselves down like the disciples and walked away from their family, walked away from their vocation, walked away from everything in their life to put everything in their life in orbit around Jesus Christ. No one ever had an American Doobie Brothers theological response that Jesus is just all right with me. You cannot like Jesus. If you only like Jesus, you don't know Jesus. He never left that option on the table. As C.S. Lewis said, for these words to be in a human being's mouth means either he is a megano-maniacal liar or he is the Lord of heaven. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Paul has us sing, He's God. He's the God who came down. Its text says in verses 7 and 8 that he didn't grasp on to his divine prerogatives. He had every claim to the entitlement of sitting on the throne of heaven in Daniel 7. All that he laid down. He let go. He didn't use that for his advantage. Instead, the text says that he... uh, Uh, made himself nothing. Now, if you've ever been to seminary, that's a very uh, famous sentence. Every seminary student at some point in their journey has had to write a paper on that sentence. It's known as the kenosis passage. The Greek word kenao means to empty. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? And you would be amazed for every million papers written, there's a million different ideas. I'll share with you mine. We already know that Jesus cannot stop being God. So I don't think in Jesus emptying himself in becoming nothing that he laid down any part of his godness or any divine attributes. But what I do think happened is that in taking on a human body, his preexistent glory was, was veiled. If it wasn't veiled, we'd be dead, right? Everyone that saw him would be dead. But his glory is veiled, and he is very selective in how he uses his all-powerfulness and his all-knowingness and his omnipresentness. So he becomes selectively divine with his attributes, and he is veiled in a human body. It's idiomatic for laying aside all rights and privileges in order to become, can we say it? A nobody. A nobody. Now, in these verses, there's three demotions that describe becoming nothing. There's three things he does. Quickly, he becomes a man. Can you imagine this? Now, again, put your imagination to work here. I mean, what does it mean for the uncreated creator to become an ovum in a teenage girl's womb barely visible to the human eye. And what does it mean for that ovum to divide and multiply and become a baby? And what does it mean for a baby to come into this world utterly dependent upon other human beings? This is the Son of God utterly dependent on other human... I mean, a a, a, what, uh, a donkey could have stepped on him. I mean, he is dependent utterly, just as you and I are. 
as a human being. And he had to learn how to talk and how to walk. And he had to walk through doorways. And he was tired and hungry and all the things of being human, even to the point of suffering and suffering all things human. Even as a toddler, we know that Jesus had to live as an immigrant in Egypt. All things, apart from having a sin nature, what it means to be human, Jesus experienced as human. He came down. You know, ancient church fathers have tried to come up with ways, again, thought experiments to, to um, explain this. And one of the ones I remember reading was about uh, one church father said it would be like a human being becoming an ant. What would that be like? Well, I would submit to you even that is infinitely far inadequate as a thought experiment because that's one thing to become a higher life form to a lower life form. It's a whole nother matter to become the uncreated creator, become a created being. Oh my goodness. The condescension. The coming down. The God became man. And then the second emotion, He became a servant. He became what the text calls a doulos, a slave. There's this great moment in John 13. Eliot preached on this a couple weeks ago. And uh, when he, it says at the beginning of John 13 that it was now the hour of Jesus. And God had put all things into His hands. And then like in the text, there's this pause. And you stop and think, oh my. Everything is in Jesus' control. He's done everything the Father asked Him to do to this point. What's He going to do? There's like this, this moment, right? Like, What's Jesus going to do now? He could walk away. He could say, I've, I've done enough. Do you remember what He does? Takes off His outer garments, wraps Himself in slave uniform, bends down, and washes the feet of every one of those guys who would desert Him, deny Him, and betray Him. He becomes slave. Do you know what's coming up in the sporting world, right? The Tour de France? Any bikers in the room? Do you know, and I found this out a few years ago, like blew my mind, and I've been waiting for the right sermon ever since. Here it is. Do you know there are bicyclists that enter the Tour de France with no intention of winning? They're called domestiques, which is the French word for servant. And their entire purpose in the race is to be shield from wind, to be enforcer of the bad guys on the other teams, to carry extra water and food for the elite riders, and to yell encouragement to them through all the legs of the race. They are not in the race to win. They are in the race to make sure someone else wins. And when Jesus came down to be man, He became domestique. And He entered the race not to win, but to get you and I across the finish line. He is servant of all. So much so that the third demotion, even to the point of death, the weakness of every human being, we cannot keep ourselves alive. We can't. And Jesus Himself taking on the form of, of humanity, was killable. He died. He became submitted to death. And the text says, even death 
on a cross. If death is the ultimate human weakness, the kind of death Jesus dies on a cross is the ultimate human indignity. I mean, we know that dying on a cross was painful. We do that on every Good Friday, and we walk through those passages, all the pain. You and I could probably articulate some of that pain. But here's the thing I think we tend to forget about death on a cross, is that it was a public spectacle. It was an ancient Roman reality show. That the reason Rome was creative in this death was because it would draw massive crowds, and they'd be able to flaunt their power and keep the population in line. I was reading um, James Cone's uh, Cross and the Lynching Tree and came across this quote by New Testament scholar named Paula Fredrickson. Here's what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross. Crucifixion was a Roman form of a public service announcement. Do not engage in sedition as this person has, or your fate will be similar. The point of the exercise was not the death of the offender as such, but getting the attention of those watching. Crucifixion, first and foremost, is addressed to an audience. And so what was God trying to say to the world, all ages, all generations, what was He trying to say in the crucifixion? In the God-man demoting himself, man, servant, death, cross. What does it mean? It means this. That the Father in eternity, past, some point, said, Jesus, will you go down? Will you go down? Will you empty yourself and go down to save the race? And Jesus did not say, wait a minute, I'm sitting on the throne of Daniel there at seven. I'm, I don't want to lay aside my rights and privilege. He did not say that. He said, I will go. And I will lay down everything and become a man who serves, who dies, even on a cross, so that the whole world will know who I am and why I've come. I will love the people. You see, this is the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who existed in eternal love. And they're so rich in love and so full of love that now, and we remind each other of this often at Waterstone, this is really important, that God did not make you and I to get love. He had all the love He ever needed in the Trinity. God made you and I to give love. And to love us. And so, love us. What does that mean? That means when someone bumped up against Jesus in a crowd, healing came out of him and he healed. It means that when people said to Jesus, We're going to break your body, Jesus said, And with my body, I'll feed you. And we're going to shed your blood. And with my blood, I'll wash away your sins. I am rich in love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. We are rich in love if we follow Jesus. Rich. The Holy Spirit pouring the love of the Father into our hearts. The love of Jesus reaching our hearts and, and shaping our hearts day after day. So we're rich in love. We have love to give. Now, do you know when that love gets tested, right? You know, you know how love gets tested as a believer? Do you know how to know if you're really a servant? When you're treated like one. When you love someone and they don't respond in kind. When they ignore it. When they reject it. 
That's how you know you're being tested. And the test is, you're so rich in love, will you continue to love this person and do what's best for them even when they reject you? That's the whole point of this poem. (laughs) Paul's not putting this poem because he has a vision of a million seminary students writhing in agony trying to figure out what this means. That's not why Paul wrote it. As every doctrine is written to shape our minds and our hearts. It was written for this reason. Verse 5, here's the topic sentence that introduces the poem. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ. It said earlier in verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So the point of what we're talking about, Jesus is God, Jesus is man, who came to serve, and as our example, in our relationships, we have the same mindset. Notice there's no qualifications on it. We try to pound this again and again at Waterstone that our highest allegiance and our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus and the kingdom, which means we prefer Democrats. We prefer Republicans. We prefer Libertarians. It doesn't matter your political differences. It doesn't matter your personality differences. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, ethnic backgrounds. None of that matters. We prefer one another no matter who we are and where we're coming from. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. That word humility means to have a lowly mind. It means you're always thinking this way. You ready? Compared to God, who am I? Compared to the love that Jesus has given to me, who am I? Compared to how fleeting and, and, and short this life is, who am I? We're always comparing statuses with Him. And that keeps us in our plate. Now, Paul's not saying you hate yourself. What he is saying, he's not, he's not saying that you think less of yourself. What he is saying is you think of yourself less. Because you've put something else in the center, and his name's Jesus. And because you've put Jesus in the center of your life, your mindset is the same as him. And so the second part of that is, in humility, consider others better. It doesn't mean that you consider others better in terms of quality. We're all made in the image of God and have you know, gifts and talents and everything. It doesn't mean that someone's better than you. It means that you put them in a better place in your life. You serve them. You love them. So what does that mean? Well, remember in our essential series, We're answering the questions, who's the Father, Paul, last week, and who's the Jesus Christ this week, and each week we're practicing a spiritual discipline. So the spiritual discipline to practice this week is the practice of humility. There's this great book by Adele Cahoon called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, and in there there's a practice of humility, and I wanted to put it on the screen. Feel free to whip out your phones if you dare and take a picture of this. It says this week, to practice humility, here's what we do. Assess your own image management quotient. Spend this week intentionally listening to how you speak about yourself to others. Journal when you spin the truth to put yourself in a better light. Can you hear yourself saying, I never watch TV, but yesterday I saw. (laughs) Why is it important for you to be known as a person who does not watch TV? 
Next slide. When introduced to others, note what you say about yourself and what you want to come out, of, out about you. Journal how you respond to one another's praise or blame. What would it mean to speak more simply and truthfully about yourself? Ask God to root you in His love and set you free simply to be who you are. Tough stuff. That's a discipline. And where do we get that motivation? By putting ourselves in another crowd at the end of the world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, there's a crowd. And we read this, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a moment at the end of time when Jesus returns, when He will be acknowledged as the pioneer resurrection man, when He will be given the name Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So it's a must and a will, right? You must acknowledge it now that Jesus is Lord. You must say it. And what are the consequences of saying it now? You go from death to life. You go from judgment to eternity. You go from a, a, a child of God. You, you, you become a citizen of the heavenly kingdom that will, can never be destroyed. You enter into a relationship with God and can never be separated from His love. Or if you resist saying it now, you will still say it. In this moment, at the end of all things, you will still say it. And then you will get what you want. To be eternally separated from Jesus. I'm pleading with you. I plead with you to hear the words, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have the everlasting life of God. Who is Jesus? will you respond by saying, Jesus is Lord. We have opportunity now to say that. We're invited to the tables around uh, the, the room, the tables of the Lord, of the elements at home. I'd ask the servers who are serving us today to please uh, go near the tables. This is an invitation from Jesus. And if you're willing, if you have, if you say again, if you want to say for the first time, Jesus is Lord. Everything in my life now revolves around Him. I give my highest allegiance. He's Lord. If you want to become a believer, proclaim that. Make that confession. If you are a believer, come and realign and reaffirm that confession by coming to the table of the Lord. Before I give the words of institution, a couple of things. First, if you're here and you're unable to get to one of the stations, after the lines are done and the communion elements are being walked out, raise your hand and our servers will see your hand and we'll bring you the elements. And two, one of the beauties of getting back uh, post-pandemic communion is we're going to ask you to leave your seats. We used to serve it to you like directly. No more, no more. We want you to leave your seats 
We want it to be uh, an effort. We want it to be an act of worship. And the other thing we'd like you to do is as you stand in line, be bold and just start talking to a person and say the peace of the Lord. Because we're not only acknowledging we've been made right with God, but being made right with God is being made right with one another. So feel free to have conversation. Feel free to embrace. Feel free to say to another believer you're in line with the peace of the Lord. On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. He broke it. He said, this is My body given for you. As often as you eat it, remember Me. In the same way after the Passover, He took the cup. He said, this cup represents My blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink it, remember Me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes.